Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up on the program this week, Pennsylvania high school students will be taking classes on financial literacy in the near future. What will they learn? Also on the program, a coalition of organizations and groups have come together to fight back against efforts to ban books, limit what teams LGBTQ athletes can join, or dictate how history is taught in schools. It's all on the Spark Weekly. Today's high school students are inundated with information in classes that they may or may not use when they become adults and are working and raising families. One thing they'll have to learn is how to manage their finances. Our parents may have taught us about checking accounts, paying uh, paying bills, credit scores, but too many of us learn by trial and error. With that in mind, Pennsylvania has become the 25th state to require high schools to provide a course in personal financial literacy starting in the 2026-27 school year. NextGen Personal Finance is a nonprofit organization that has been pushing for all high school students to take a semester of personal finance before graduating. On The Spark today, we're joined by Yanelli Espinal, Director of Outreach for NextGen Personal Finance and author of the book, Mind Your Money. Yanelli Espinal, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to have this conversation. It's one of my absolute favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> Of all time. Well, you see, that's just it. I mean, I, I watched a few and listened to a few of your podcast, and I thought that Yanelli is like the most passionate person I have ever seen about personal <laughs> finance. So how did you develop this passion for making sure that not only yourself, but that other people know how to manage their money? Yeah. I mean, you know, this, it's a very personal thing for me. And I think a lot of people probably experience a similar thing psychologically. When you have been deprived of something, you either are resentful and angry, or you just say, you know what, I'm going to get my revenge a different way. I'm going to get access to it anyway. And, and that's what happened with me. I never got a personal finance class in school, even though I was an overachiever academically. I took all the AP classes. I got a full scholarship to college. I was very academically driven. And I know that if I had been given the opportunity to take a class about money, I would have been really good at money. But because I never got it, I ended up with lots of credit card debt in college and after college. I didn't know a thing about how to manage my bank account, my credit cards, and and I made a lot of mistakes. So I now I'm very passionate about this because I think that it's the way to help so many others prevent those mistakes and those you know cycles of, of negative financial choices from repeating themselves. You went to Brown University, an Ivy League school. When did you realize that you hadn't been educated in finances? You know, I got to say, it was not when I got my credit card. <laughs> when I got that credit card, I thought I, I had accomplished something. Like, I thought I was successful. I had this plastic card with my name on it. You know, that's an accomplishment. I could go and pay for my own textbooks and not have to bug my parents who really couldn't afford, frankly, couldn't afford to help me. And so I felt like I was proud of myself because I didn't understand what the terms and conditions were between me and that credit card. And like, what does it mean to borrow money from a bank or a financial institution and promise to pay it back plus really high interest that compounds annually. And because I didn't know what any of that meant, um, I was just out swiping my credit card, buying everything that I wanted and things that I needed. 
And so I think it was the repercussions of those choices is when I really learned. I sat down with my credit card statements and I was just crying, you know, like, how did I let it get so bad? Like, how did these interest charges just keep accruing? And it just felt like I had dug myself into a hole and it was just time for me to figure out how to get myself out of it. Did you talk to your classmates about this? Were they in a similar situation? You know, I got to say a lot of my friends that I gravitated towards were similar in terms of like their financial background, like their families also were lower income. A few of them were in the same scholarship program that I was at, that I was involved in. And so we we all kind of struggled together. And I thought it was normal to have to, uh, you know, work three, four five jobs and to have to borrow money to pay for everything. And uh, and so it felt normal to me. Um, and, and I recognized later on that some of my wealthier peers were getting money from their parents and, and, you know, their parents would put thousands of dollars in their, in their debit cards and, and like, just felt very unfair. But at the same time, I didn't really quite know how to reconcile those differences. And I just felt like, you know what, I'm going to have to make do with what I've got. It's not a lot. So I'm going to have to borrow until I can, you know, sustain myself financially eventually. So I'm not going to ask for a specific number or a percentage, but do you think there are a lot of young people who experienced the same thing as you did? I got to say, absolutely. One out of three students who go to college experience this because of their first generation identity. So most of the students that are going to college are having to make financial choices every single day. You know, it's very rare that you find a college kid who doesn't have to think about money at all. They're having to figure out how to buy detergent and how to buy textbooks and if they're going to buy their friend a birthday gift or not, um, and how to pay for lab fees and supplies for class. Like the everyday decisions around money pop up and nonstop. And, you know, for me, I would say the first gen identity that I had being the first generation in my family to go to college, being a first generation American, those first gen identities overlap in a way where I felt a lot of pressure that like I had to figure this out. And I think a lot of first generation college students and first gen Americans are experiencing that pressure too. I have to smile when I, I, I heard you say you have to figure out how to pay for detergent before you said paying for books. So <laughs> obviously you want to make sure that the clothes were clean out there. Oh, yeah. That fit matters more than any other time in your life when you're in your 20s. You care so much about what people think about your outfit. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about uh, next-gen personal finance. Uh, you're the director of outreach. Talk about next-gen if you would. Yeah, so Next Gen Personal Finance is a national nonprofit organization. I got involved with them in 2018 when they found uh, some of my videos I was posting on YouTube where I was just putting some financial literacy tutorials together on social media, just trying to do my part to expand access to, know, to financial education. But in 2014, this nonprofit was founded by two co-founders, Tim Ranzetta and Jessica Endlich. Uh, Tim has a background in entrepreneurship and business, and Jessica's background is actually in education. She was like the youngest high school principal in the New York City Department of Education. And so they knew that there was a lack of curriculum and especially curriculum that was accessible for free. A lot of times if your school is underfunded and your budget is tight, you just won't consider financial literacy because you can't afford to pay for the curriculum materials, the lesson plans, the activities, the games, the homework assignments, the assessments and the answer keys. That's a lot of materials. And so they decided they were going to create this curriculum and make it 100% free for anyone and everyone, but especially target teachers in, in schools, in public schools to say, hey, you can grab 
this curriculum ready to go out of the box and teach it. The great thing about it is that it's online based. So even if, you know, you a lot of teachers will say, oh, but I like having a textbook. But if you print a financial literacy textbook, it's going to be outdated in just a matter mm -hmm. of weeks because interest rates change, tax policy changes, new legislation makes Roth IRAs now able to be switched to 529, vice versa. I mean, things just change all the time. So having it online is just an incredible way to keep it up to date and 21st century relevant. Um, and so just to be clear, you know, NGPF is not a vendor. We're not selling anything. The curriculum is free. And also the teacher training is 100% free. And there's also advocacy tools and research on the website to help make a case for financial education. So the website is ngpf.org. So Pennsylvania, as I mentioned in the introduction, will become the 25th state in the country that uh, high schools will be required to offer or, uh, you know, to have their students uh, with a personal finance uh, course. So what will be taught in those personal finance courses? I mean, you've touched on a lot of these things already. Yeah, so I would say it does look a little different state by state. In Pennsylvania specifically, uh, I think I want to say in 2010 or 2011, 2010, there was an act passed called Act 104, which required a task force to be created for economic education and financial literacy. And those members of that task force had to come together and decide over the few years following that act, what would be their uh, recommendations that they would offer to the governor and to the General Assembly? And so they created a report, that task force, and one requirement that they rec or one thing that they recommended to the governor was a requirement for high school graduation, which is now a reality due to SBA 43, this legislation that recently passed in Pennsylvania. But the second thing was that they decided, hey, it would be a really good idea for Pennsylvania to create state specific standards for K through 12 instruction of financial literacy. And so that's something that's being developed right now. And the state of Pennsylvania will soon have their own state specific personal financial literacy standards, which will cover so many important topics. I mean, the key is that each state sort of decides what they want to emphasize, but there are national standards for personal finance that already exist, which include these big buckets like earning income, spending money, saving money, investing, understanding credit and managing credit and managing risk. So they sort of put all of the different lessons under one of these big buckets. And that's how students are being taught all the different, you know, basic financial lessons about budgeting, banking, and how to make, you know, a, a plan around your future goals for money. They all fit into one of these larger buckets. So let's talk about some specifics. You touched on this when you were talking about your own experience when you went off to college. But let's talk about what young people, specifically high school students, what don't they know about personal finances? Oof, there's so much. I mean, anything that they have not yet experienced firsthand or anything that their parents have not yet taught them yet or like that they haven't exposed to. So these are going to be like your deeper financial topics, you know, taxes. They've never paid taxes before, likely if they're teenagers. Insurance. They haven't had to select insurance, whether that's health insurance, car insurance, life insurance, homeowners insurance. Mm. Uh, investing. A lot of times they just haven't thought about the stock market yet and what opportunities exist for them to build wealth over time. Some of them may have bank accounts, but many of them don't yet have bank accounts. 
and they haven't yet had to create a budget, um, you know, and decide like, what am I going to allocate my money to? And what do I just have to cut out? Because I just simply don't have enough dollars, right? And and many of them have never considered their credit score, what it is and, and why it matters. Um, but I think one of the most important things that a lot of teenagers don't know today that is probably so, so much more critical than a lot of people think is the psychology of money right? The behavioral economics and the psychology aspect comes in because so much of money today is internet-based. It's digital. And so when we think about the way the internet looks today and how it operates, it's very different from how it was even just, you know, 10, 20 years ago. It's as if the internet is so much more invasive in our lives. I mean, companies are constantly it's just putting a barrage of ads before us, whether that's on social media, whether that's on a web browser. And then what they do is they target us with these ads and then retarget. Even if you just look at an ad for a couple seconds, they know that you hovered over it for a little bit longer than all the other content on that page. And they will retarget you until you make a purchase. And that to me as a millennial and probably every generation older than us, they, we see that as a bit invasive and, and a little bit too, uh, you know, it's, it's too much. It, it's more negative than positive versus these younger generations, Gen Z and, and younger. This is their normal. They have been experiencing this world of the Internet. It is their normal. They don't see it as invasive to be targeted and retargeted. And so I think we really have to help students understand what they don't know, which is that your personal finances are being influenced constantly by your psychology. And when that's being tampered with online by all of these mega corporations and companies that want to take the dollars right out of your wallet, you sort of have to build up some resistance. You've got to educate yourself and you have to understand how to fight back so that you can keep those dollars in your wallet rather than constantly paying them to companies and products and services without giving it too much thought. You know, you just scared me and a lot of people by what you described. <laughs> you it know, is scary. <laughs> it, it is. You know, we look at Google Trends all the time when we're thinking about uh, topics to uh, feature on the program. Just yesterday, I noticed that one of the most, uh, the biggest trends in America was how to create a budget. Now, I wonder why, I don't know if it was because it was January or what, but I was curious as to why that was, you know, it said it would, had gone up 850% since the first of the year of people looking to see how to create a budget. This is kind of the basic of the basics when you talk, about, and so many people don't know how to do it. So generally, how does... Uh, a 15, 16-year-old, maybe 18, 19-year-old, then a young adult after they're out of school working for the first time. How do they create a budget? Yeah, you know, this is going to vary so much. And I suspect this is probably why people have been searching for it, because every time you go online to look it up, you're going to see a million different opinions about how to make a budget. You're going to have the 50-30-20, where you split your income 50% towards needs and 30% towards wants and 20% towards debt and, 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 you know, getting yourself in a better place financially. Then you have those who say, no, 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 the best way to budget is a zero-based budget where you have to account for every single penny that comes in and have a place for it in your budget. And then you have folks that are like a bit old school and they're like, no, you got to create a cash-based envelope system where you, when your envelope is at nothing, you've run out of money for that category and you can't spend until you refill it next month. And so because there's so many different 
uh, personal preferences for how to budget and strategies for budgeting, that's where I think we we sort of overwhelm young students and we sort of maybe even confuse them a little bit because so much of what we learn in school is being taught as black and white. Here's a math question. Here's the right answer. It's it's just you, you learn it and this is what it is. But with personal finance, right, it, it, it's so personal. That's the, the first word in this term, personal finance. It's so personal based on your values, based on your preferences. You might want a digital uh, budgeting system or you might want something tactile that you can do hands on. A cash envelope system might be something you prefer or a, a, a journal where you write down everything you spend money on and keep track that way. So I think what we've done, at least at NGPF, is our curriculum has sort of separated uh, how to budget into two different ways. The first thing is to do a values-based exercise where you simply don't think about the dollar amounts. You don't think about the math of it. You just think about what values you have. And the way we do that is there's a game called the bean game where students have a worksheet in front of them that has all the budgetary categories, housing, food, transportation, you know, electronics and entertainment. And they have to go through and allocate. They're, they're given 20 uh, dry beans or, or even, you know, you could do sunflower seeds or something like that. But you they, you get 20 little items and then they have to go through and allocate. OK, so if I want to live by myself in my own bachelorette pad, I got to put four beans on housing. And then I want to have high speed Internet. I got to put three beans on Wi-Fi. But then I'm running out of beans so quickly and I'm like, oh, no, but I haven't even saved anything. Okay, so if I want to put two beans in my savings, well, then I'm going to have to not live in a bachelorette pad. I'm going to have to get a roommate, and then I'm going to have to move two of those beans away from housing and put them in saving. So we're not talking about dollar amounts yet, but they're exploring their values and where they're willing to compromise in order to make ends meet somewhere else. And I think that that is such an important exercise because oftentimes we just jump to the finances of budgeting, to the dollar amounts and the calculations and the percentages. And yet we don't give students the space to just think about what matters to them personally. Maybe their family values, their cultural values, their financial goals are gonna be different than their classmates. So we really just want this class to be a space for them to think critically and explore a lot of those ideas and reflect about their values around money. And then we get to the math of it, the spreadsheet, the tracker, you know, the inflow and outflow of cash. That part can be taught and can be memorized pretty rotely, but the values exploration and the personal reflection, that's critical to, to come first. And would you call that the most important part? Because, I mean, I look down this list of things to talk about credit scores, loans, debt, establishing credit, all those things. Is that budget the first thing that maybe a student should do? I do think that tracking your spending is probably going to be the most important. Now, some people do it in different ways. And the word budget obviously makes a lot of people uncomfortable. They cringe. Oh, I don't want to be on a budget. That makes <laughs> me feel like it's restricting me. And, I, and I'm living in this mentality of a lack of money. And I have to cut back on my budget. But I think tracking is the key. Accounting systems. I mean, if we think about just the earliest times, right, M money or, or numbers, right, in math was created so we could have accounting systems, right? So you have to have an accounting system for your money, whether that's tracking, just writing down everything that you are spending money on for a couple of days so you can see some trends um, or having a really meticulous plan. But I think the key for students is oftentimes you're just spending. If you get an allowance or if you earn a paycheck, you just start spending it until you don't have any left and then you wait for the next refill. And that's dangerous 
especially as a habit to start forming that early because you're not really thinking about planning before you spend the money. And so I think the key is to start getting them to track so they can see some patterns and analyze that that spending data. You know, Google and Facebook and, and, and Meta, all these companies, they are obsessed with your data. They want our data so bad. Why? Because they want to see trends in how we spend. We need that data so we can see trends in how we spend and we can make better and more informed decisions. Mm. We only have about 30 seconds left. I have to say you are one of the most energetic and passionate guests <laughs> I have ever had on this program after 20 years of doing it. So <laughs> congratulations. You. I think that's a, a, a good way to say it. But thank you very much for being with us today. I, you know, there's so many things that you've talked about that... I don't think can can be confined to young people. It could be right. because there are so many of us who learn by trial and error, and sometimes it's too late. It uh, is after a few years of rent, a house, kids, a wife, a husband, all those things. So uh, I want to thank you, Nelly Espinal, Director of Outreach for Next Gen Personal Finance, author of the book, Mind Your Money. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. As you said, it's important to teach this in public schools and not leave it to the school of hard knocks. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly, a coalition of organizations and groups have come together to fight back against efforts to ban books, limit what teams LGBTQ athletes can join, or dictate how history is taught in schools. You're listening to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Polarization over racial justice, transgender rights, books and history in schools and other issues are characteristics of the nation's culture wars. The battleground for many of these issues is increasingly close to home in school districts, where school boards are making decisions about whether transgender athletes who identify as female can participate on girls' sports teams or how the role of African Americans in history is taught in the classroom. A coalition of advocacy groups called Welcoming and Inclusive Schools, or PA WINS, has formed to fight policies they deem as attacks on diversity or non-inclusive policies. We're joined on the Spark today by two representatives of organizations in the coalition and a parent. With us are Alex Domingos, an advocacy and policy strategist for the American Civil Liberties Union, Sharon Ward, senior policy advisor with the Education Law Center, and Adam Hosey, a community member from Mannheim Township in Lancaster County. I want to welcome all three of you to the program today. Thanks for having us. So, so uh, let me start with you, Sharon Ward, at the Education Law Center. What are the goals of the PA Wins Coalition? So, Scott, um, the group that came together um, came together kind of in an emergency situation. What was happening was at the local level, um, parents were facing and hearing about school board policies that they found to be extreme and really surprised to hear about things like book bans, things like efforts to prevent teachers from hanging flags for save the whales in their in their in their um, classrooms and parents reached out to a number of organizations for help to understand 
what was happening, to understand their rights, and to um, to get some help in and in, and in, um, working with their school boards to change these policies. And so that's how the organizations came together. There are a number of us now. I think we have about twenty organizations that have signed on, including the groups that you have here. And our purpose is really twofold. I mean, one is to make sure that all Pennsylvania schools are welcoming and inclusive to all students because kids need safe and welcoming environments to learn. And then the second is to help parents and community members who want to ensure that their schools are safe places that that meet the needs of, of their children. When you say that the parents were reaching out with the Education Law Center in particular, what were they reaching out saying? Um, they, I cannot tell you the number, and I, and I think Alex can also talk about this at the ACLU. Um, they were, we were getting panic calls from people who said our school district wants to change their existing book policy and basically let anyone object and take a book out of a, out of a, a library. Is that legal? They reached out and said, I have a transgender child, but our, our, um, um, our school district wants to change the policy and not let my child um, participate in, in the sports team um, uh, uh, along with her, with with her gender identity. And they didn't know what to do. So we um, helped them understand what the legal rights were. Um, but uh, but also uh, and the other organizations also help them to come together as a community to work together to get involved in their school boards and fight what they saw were really damaging policies for kids. Alex Domingos, uh, why did the ACLU become part of this coalition? What did you hear? Um, so we uh, began to get involved around 2022. Uh, when, like Sharon mentioned, we started receiving an influx of these um, sort of intake requests um, around a lot of the issues that Sharon mentioned, and including censorship um, and trying to stifle the free speech and expression of teachers and students, mm -hmm. um, in addition to like the trans-exclusionary politics uh, policies, um, book bans, curriculum changes, um, and efforts like that. Mm -hmm. So, Adam Hosey, as a parent of uh, two children, Yes. In Mannheim Township in, in Lancaster County. Uh, I don't know whether you're affiliated with anyone other than the coalition itself, but why did you want to get involved? Yeah, sure. So I was a teacher for about 10 years. Uh, in the past decade, I was always teaching uh, and focusing and making sure my students understood um, how society is constructed. And that included teaching about race and gender and all of these things. Um, and as I progressed in my advocacy and my activism, I realized that a lot of this work um, has to be done at the school board level, has to be done at the, the state house and legislative level. Uh, so that is kind of how I got involved in these matters. Um, and then looking around Lancaster County, looking at like Warwick, Elizabethtown, Hempfield area school district, uh, we were seeing a lot of the same similar issues. Um, so we wanted to make sure that if this was coming to Mannheim Township and we knew it would, uh, that we were going to be ready for it and then that we were preparing. We were trying to work uh, in coalition and community with each other, um, knowing that just because it's happening in Elizabethtown, 20 minutes down 283, it's going to happen here, too, and we need to get ready for that. Did it happen? It did. It in did. In what, what way? 
Um, so we had a, a transphobic uh, school board member uh, who tried to introduce um, policies that were trans-exclusionary, um, forcing athletes uh, to play on the team of their gender assigned at birth, not their gender identity. Um, so we were able to effectively utilize the ACLU at Law Center um, and this PA Wins Coalition to really provide us kind of like a playbook, um, a foundational approach um, to how we were going to advocate. Um, I have background in organizing, so I was able to organize students and parents, uh, provide uh, like public speaking notes, things like that. Um, but what the Ed Law Center really did was really help us with like the legal basis for this. Um, and we effectively won because of the legality of it. Um, we got a really great support letter, letter from them. Um, and now our district is waiting on the Title IX uh, federal regulations, which uh, the, our district solicitor said was the right thing to do. Our superintendent said it was the right thing to do. And thankfully, our school board also voted uh, for the right thing. All right. So, so what, Scott, go ahead, can I, Sharon. Can I yeah. jump in for a Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think to set the stage for you, um, what we've seen in school districts across the state is parents who want to take their kids to, to sports and to ballet and help them with their homework found themselves thrust in the middle of a what was really a manufactured political crisis um, by, frankly, um, people who were came from out of state, people who were informed by policies happening in Virginia and Florida and sort of dragged into involvement in their school boards, involvement in these fights. Um, they are, to a large degree, you know, the, the heroes of liberty because they've just been fighting for their kids, fighting for the Constitution, fighting for, for the First Amendment. Um, and so we really just had to respond. These are our, our, our folks who would like to go back to doing what they were doing before they had to really get forced into these very controversial issues. Sharon, what you just mentioned, I mean, there are, are so many aspects to this, but nationally, I mentioned the culture wars right up front in the introduction, and it has made its way down to the local level uh, on school boards in particular. But you use the word liberty, and what it reminded me of was Moms for Liberty, which is a group. It's a national group, but they did have uh, they have chapters here in Pennsylvania, and including even in Lancaster County, where they went to school boards. What do you think of a group like that? And then what they did was they were fighting for to have books, some books limited, uh, how. Uh, racial history was was taught. Sure. Again, um, the uh, I can remember can remember um, talking to a school superintendent who said he had some uh, a moms for liberty person come from Florida to talk to him. So a lot of what's deemed culture wars is really a political agenda that's being brought into Pennsylvania by folks who aren't necessarily here um, uh, to rile folks up. And we think really unnecessarily. Um, just to be clear, Pennsylvania parents have a lot of rights over what their kids learn in school. And school districts are very thoughtful about their policies, but their number one goal is to protect kids and keep them safe. And what we found in the these attacks is that they really ended up being attacks on kids, attacks on on children of color, attacks on LGBTQ students, and that's why the parents responded so so vociferously to to this political agenda. 
I'm going to jump around on on uh, the three of you for uh, a, a couple minutes during the program. But Adam, I want to turn back to you because you brought up a specific instance in Mannheim Township. The issue of uh, transgender students or athletes in particular that want to play on uh, the, the team of uh, their sexual identity. Um, I've seen respected polls, even here in Pennsylvania, that show that a majority of people don't see it as discrimination, but see it as biology. Now, many of these people, probably most of these people, do not consider themselves transphobes or uh, homophobes or anything like that. They look at it as biology, that someone who was born as a male at birth is stronger or has a better a bigger build than female athletes and it's not fair again they don't look at it as discrimination and i'm sure these things came up during the the manheim township debate what do you say to that yeah for a number of those those people who just you know like me i grew up playing sports things like that 20 years ago i probably would have said said the same thing um and then i learned a little bit more about gender identity about what it means to be transgender sex assigned at birth all of those things um and the bottom line is that in manheim township and many of these districts across the state this shouldn't even be a an issue um because there are a lot more important things happening um maybe one student in manheim township this would have affected um, so we are spending a lot of time wasting time, our school board members, uh, public taxpayer money on litigation and all these things um, to focus on excluding maybe a handful of students. And what these conversations are doing is actually making a, a very harmful space for all LGBTQ plus students, um, because we have students that come to school um, as they are, and they see the adults in the room questioning who they are, and they are not allowed to be themselves authentically. Um, so, you know, what I would say to myself 20 years ago, who might have been exactly the same, like what you said, as someone who just said, oh, this is about fairness and competitive in nature, is like, what is the real reason that we're playing high school, middle school sports? Um, no one's going pro. We know the stats on that. Um, it's not a competitive issue. That that uh, that math is, or those statistics have been thoroughly debunked. Even the world Rugby Association allows uh, transgender athletes. So it's not really a safety issue. There's no actual evidence to imply all of these things that um, folks on the other side are saying. But what the most important thing is that we are creating inclusive and space safe spaces um, for all students and especially transgender students. And uh, Alex, let me turn to you for just a moment. I have, over the years of my career as a journalist, attended so many school board meetings where there's one or two people there. So on one hand, it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing to see people taking uh, an interest in their children's education. But on the other hand, if just like Adam described, if it's people talking about things that don't have to do with improving education, so what should a parent's role be in going to education? Because many of these people who object to the books or uh, to the, which bathroom a student uses, that kind of thing, or say, well, it's my right as a parent to talk about these things. 
Yeah, and it certainly is. Um, you know, as an organization, we always encourage folks to be involved in the political process, um, use their voice and advocate, and that's a big part of what the coalition works on. So we encourage any interested parents or taxpayers, community members, to pay attention to school board meetings. Um, a lot of them are streamed online, or if you're able to attend in person, to certainly do so. Um, there's a lot of great organizations in the coalition that um, can get folks comfortable with advocacy. We recommend, you know, making it a, a fun thing if you can, you know, bringing your friends and family members along um, because, you know, as taxpayers, you have a voice. Um, you're allowed to advocate. You're allowed to speak your piece. And I think the more scrutiny gets placed on school boards, um, a lot of these issues can be detected. Um, and if you find that your school board is engaging in anti-inclusive education policies, um, your voice is kind of the basic um, tool you have to advocate against those. All right, I have to follow up. How do you make it a fun thing when so many of these school meetings turn into screaming, name-calling, uh, you know, and, and let's face it, uh, today, even the threat of violence out there. Yeah, certainly. And uh, of course, we never advocate the threats of violence. I mean, I, I think there's many ways you can do it. Like I said, in getting your friends involved, uh, maybe debriefing or before the meeting, meeting up over, um, you know, coffee or whatever beverage of your choice. Um, you know, getting your probably not alcohol, <laughs> probably not a good idea. <laughs> maybe after. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we just certainly about uh, um, advocate for getting your your personal community involved, right? Because it takes all of our voices. It takes all of us working together um, to amplify those voices and, and also to let the school board members that are looking out for marginalized communities, let them know that they're supported and heard. Um, we know that, like you said, these meetings have been pretty acrimonious lately and um, folks that are standing up for trans kids, um, kids of color, they also need to know that folks are out there supporting them and that we see that they are um, working to make schools inclusive spaces and, you know, it gets get back to the normal things school boards are supposed to be doing and not spending valuable time and money and resources um, sort of litigating uh, these fights that um, aren't really necessary for advancing the education of every child that attends at school. What has to happen to get school boards back to normal? And I, I, I don't know, there might be people who would be pessimistic that that day will ever come where they're talking about things to improve education for students. I mean, how do you get back to what was once considered normal? It's good old-fashioned democracy, you know, um, getting people involved, letting other, because a lot of people, for better or worse, you know, don't necessarily pay attention to what's happening at every school board meeting. So getting the word out there and making sure that, you know, when school board elections come up, people are aware of the candidates' policies and know which way to vote. Um, you know, do you want to be spending money fighting off lawsuits because you're discriminating against children, or do you want your school board to be, you know, responsible um, and effective advocates for all students? Mm -hmm. So, Sharon, so if, go ahead, Sharon. Let me let me jump in on that question. Um, so, so I, I would say it's two things. One one thing will happen is to make clear that um, when 
when we have scrimming groups of parents at school board meetings who um, it creates an environment that's damaging for kids. And I think to the extent that people understand that, it will help, I hope, to drive people's behavior at these events um, to be a little bit more considerate because kids really do take it personally. They feel under attack. I think that the second thing is maybe to begin to remind people of what the law is. We have a constitution. The constitution says that uh, we have a First Amendment, and that means that people have the freedom to read what they should be able to read. And so efforts that um, might be undertaken to um, prevent for, for one group of people to decide what another group of people is reading, um, they're not constitutional. Similarly, there's a lot of there's a lot of case law and a lot of regulations that protect the rights of LGBTQ students and and trans students. And so school boards are are, are school board members are oftentimes um, uh, reviewing policies and creating policies that are simply illegal. And to the extent that the school boards will act in, in the law, um, we can minimize some of these debates and get back to talking about what kids really need so that they can be successful. So, Sharon, what will PA WINS actually do, the coalition that has just been formed? So, so we do a couple of things. Um, we have a number of groups that will work with parents on the ground to answer the questions, to help them look through the policies and identify what you know what the changes are and where those are harmful or or um, illegal. We will provide um, ACLU and an Ed Law Center, for example, will assist individual um, parents and students. Uh, at this at the school board level um, and provide legal representation. There are each of our organizations also has brought um, complaints with the US Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. So we have a legal route, we have a parent support route, and uh, we have an and a public education route. We want people to understand the impact of these things. Mm. We only have a minute left. I want to thank the three of you for being with us today. Adam Hosey, as a parent and a teacher, what do you want to see happen? Uh, your comment about you know getting school boards back to normal really stood out to me um, because the way that public schools function right at right now are, are not acceptable uh, for black and brown students, for LGBTQ plus students. So not only are we trying to get extremism out of our school boards, but we want to really create a space where, where every single student feels comfortable being themselves in their own skin. Uh, my first grader, my kindergartner, I want them to grow up in a, in a school district that's a little kinder than it was for me as an Asian person uh, going through public school. So I think that's what we all want. We all care about our kids, and that's what we're really fighting for. Again, I want to thank the three of you for being with us. The group is PA Wins. Uh, Alex Domingos is an advocacy and policy strategist for the American Civil Liberties Union. Sharon Ward, senior policy advisor with the Education Law Center. And Adam Hosey parent and teacher in Mannheim Township, Lancaster County. Thank the three of you for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the Spark Weekly. To learn more or hear other past Spark programs, go to witf.org slash the Spark. I'm Scott Lamar.